Have you ever wondered why exactly it is that things usually sound better at home than they do on stage, in auditions, or even in lessons? It's easy to chalk it up to nerves or assume that you just have to practice more or get more performance experience. And sure, those things certainly are part of the puzzle, but a lot of times that's not really the true root cause. If you've been confused by the inconsistency of your performances, I put together a free four-minute quiz called the Mental Skills Audit, which will help you pinpoint your mental strengths and weaknesses and figure out what exactly to adjust and tweak in your preparation for more consistently optimal performances. You can take the Mental Skills Audit online at bulletproofmusician.com MSA. That's MSA for Mental Skills Audit. And again, it's 100% free, and it'll take just four minutes to get your results emailed to you as a PDF. This is Noah Kageyama, and you're listening to the Bulletproof Musician Podcast. Every Sunday morning, we'll take a look at a new research-based tip or technique to help you practice more effectively or perform better under pressure. And on the first Sunday of every month, I'll have a guest from the music, sport, or research world who will share their insights on how we can all be a little more awesome in the practice room and on stage. Today, I'll be chatting with physical therapist Howard Nelson and violinist Pamela Frank. But before we get started, I wanted to share a little bit of background. I may have alluded to this on a previous episode, but a couple years ago, I sustained a neck injury, where essentially I got pushed over backwards onto my neck, heard some crunching and popping sounds, and ended up having quite a bit of pain afterwards. Fortunately, things weren't so bad that I needed surgery or anything like that, but the specialist I saw did send me to physical therapy. I have to confess that I didn't understand physical therapy at first, meaning A lot of the things they asked me to do seemed kind of trivial, and sometimes I couldn't even quite connect the dots between what they're having me do and where I was experiencing pain. Plus, even though I was going two or three times a week, nothing seemed to be changing. So I was kind of skeptical, but given how scared I was of the possibility of a future in which my neck and upper back felt this unstable and painful, out of desperation, I dutifully did the exercises they prescribed to me. And then suddenly, one day, I noticed that things were a little bit better. And so I continued to do the exercises and began to understand how everything was interconnected and that over the years, I had developed a whole assortment of muscle imbalances and asymmetries and weaknesses and tightness that had made me something of a ticking time bomb anyway, even if I hadn't experienced this particular neck trauma. My experience in physical therapy gave me a whole new appreciation for how much of an impact the tiny seemingly inconsequential postural habits we engage in on a daily basis can have when you compound that effect over hours, days, weeks, months, and years. So a few months ago, when I saw that the violinist Pamela Frank and a physical therapist named Howard Nelson were giving a talk on physical therapy at a conference I was attending, I was intrigued and went to check it out. It ended up being a really awesome talk, and there were so many things they said that really stuck with me and that I couldn't stop thinking about the rest of that day. Like how sounding good can delude you into thinking that how you're playing your instrument is okay, and how it can be important to divorce music making from your body, and what that even means. What was cool was to see the overlap between Pamela's expertise and experience as a violinist and Howard's expertise and experience as a physical therapist. So I reached out to them, and they were generous enough to take some time out of their schedule to sit down and talk. The first thing I was curious to find out about was how their paths crossed in the first place. Here's Howard. I got a phone call from her 
physician. And uh, he said, I have a, a patient for you to see who's a friend of mine who's a great player. And uh, he told me a little bit about her problem. A spinal surgeon referred me to this doctor. And uh, so I got to see Pam through uh, her physician. And then I didn't know anything about who she was or what she did, but just treated her like a normal person. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that was November 5th, 2012. And then I saw her probably three times a week for the next few months. Which six months. Six months, yeah. which is unusual to see somebody that frequently, which was very lucky for me. Uh, so I could really go slowly and methodically into the things I thought would help her. And usually people come very infrequently and sporadically. And you, you can't, if, somebody's ha- if somebody needs to change their use of muscles and their movement patterns, it takes guidance and practice. And oftentimes I, I, I feel like I, I haven't had enough time with somebody with Pam. I was lucky. Actually, it was seven months now that I think about it. And from my point of view, I had, I had been wheeling my father in a wheelchair on his first day confined to a wheelchair. So I was trying to cheer him up and I wheeled him up, up and down the Upper West Side. And the next day I had to play a concert and go on tour and I woke up and I could barely move. Uh, I was just sort of muscle bound, not knowing what kind of strength and fitness it requires to <laughs> wheel a wheelchair up and down curbs and hills. But of course, you know, I ignored the pains and played my concert. And then I went on this tour and I remember hoisting a piece of luggage overhead and feeling something happen in my neck. And of course, I ignored that, too, because I was on a tour and I was very excited to be on tour. And so you play through pain with adrenaline and, you know, you ignore it. And then um, about 10 days later, I really couldn't move my head at all. And I couldn't sleep and I, I really just couldn't function at all. And so I went to a doctor, I went to a, a surgeon where I, where I was playing and they said, get an MRI and the MRI, you know, showed, showed herniation of two discs in my neck. And the neurosurgeon said, you need a spinal fusion. And I called my doctor and he said, well, first of all, you don't get a spinal fusion right away. You come home and I see you. And so I did that. And he said, you do nothing of the sort. You go see Howard Nelson. I do what my doctor says. So I went and see, saw Howard Nelson. And, but I basically had to stop everything. I had to stop work, teaching, travel, playing, everything. And I became a devotee of Howard Nelson's um, methodology, I guess. And it made perfect sense. It made so much sense to me. I, I'd been to many practitioners before, but this was really about common sense and cause and effect. And though it was very slow, I knew that it was going to be permanent because it was very slow. It wasn't a quick fix. And I'm an excellent student. And it was also because it was career threatening. I, I had to do something about it. I, I didn't have a choice to ignore it anymore. And so I became a religious uh, PT patient. And my whole day was basically spent doing the, the homework. And six months later, I was much, much better. And then eight months later, I was much, much better. And, and eventually I was totally fine. But I had relearned how to use my body completely, not just in playing, but in walking and sitting and sleeping and eating, standing, everything. But I had learned how, with the guidance, I learned how to retrain my body for a permanent fix, not a, not a quick fix, forever fix. And of course, we know that real change is slow. Real learning is slow. And so it took really a year and a half to start playing again. But, but now I have a completely new setup and I have a new way of doing everything. 
And I pay attention to it all the time. It's sort of forever also, the awareness. Um, yeah, and so, you know, then we had to get married because <laughs> it seems <It's> obvious. <laughs> right. Pamela noted that she was a good student and great at doing her homework. But even so, I wondered if she experienced any of the same sorts of skepticism or resistance to physical therapy that I had at first. Well, I wouldn't call it resistance. I would just say that I had probably been ignoring small signs my whole life. You know, I remember saying to Howard, oh, I've never had anything like this. I've never had any aches and pains, you know, and all my friends and colleagues are injured all the time and I've never had anything. And he said, probably not. Probably you did have things that you either repressed or decided not to pay attention to or have forgotten. And that's that's probably true. So, But there wasn't resistance. It was just, I, I really had no choice. I mean, because it was such an acute situation that I, I went whole hog in. But I must say that I've been to many practitioners and I'm skeptical of voodoo and magic touch. And, and I'm skeptical of having things being done to me because that's not teaching me how to do anything different for myself. And so though I, at first I was skeptical because my, the first couple of sessions, all Howard did was put my arms on pillows and I'd been so used to being poked and prodded and needed, needed and um, done, having done things to me that I called my doctor after the first session. I said, what is this? This is not physical therapy. I need a real physical therapist. <laughs> and he said, stick with it, you know, because, and, your explanation is always because the arms are attached to the neck and something as basic as that never even occurred to me. So I was skeptical at first, but then when I started realizing that all the things in my daily life were improving, like walking and sleeping and sitting, then it's, it started to dawn on me that there's a connection between how you move all day long and not just on your instrument. And then, as I said, the common sense aspect of it really appealed to me. Like I, I understood like cause and effect. If I do this and it hurts, don't do that. And with, with the proper guidance, find a different and better way to do that. So then I became a real acolyte. I was also curious about Howard's perspective and what his initial goals were for Pamela when seeing her for the first time. She was, uh, sort of in a was it post-traumatic stress uh, situation where she was cold she was clammy I knew I couldn't make her do many things that's why I tried to get her some relief by putting her back to a neutral place neutral anatomical place so if I align her well and I take away the weight of her arms how does that feel to her and she said well that's better um so that's a big deal if, if you can really concretely say that this is a better feeling when I'm like uh, such and such. So I, I was pretty much hands off for the first two weeks because I knew she was very acute and doing the least bit of the wrong thing would have set her off. And so I was very careful just to be very, very easy, easy with what I did. I'm sort of smiling inside a little bit because, and no one can see this, but Pam has her hands on top of her head. <laughs> I understand that that's something that you've started doing more to make sure that your posture is better or, or, or something along those lines. Yeah, I mean, that's a really great way of using the muscles in your middle upper back that help move your shoulder blade, which is part of moving your arm. And musicians uh, who are spending three, four, five, six, seven, eight hours with an instrument in front of their bodies, that's a big stress on those muscles. 
And we just want to make sure that those muscles get used in a normal way uh, intermittently during the, during the playing so they're healthy. And some people, they never raise their arms up over years of time with an instrument in front of them, and they, they have problems lifting their arms up. And that, that's a, an important part of treatment that they could do that. It took me months to be able to actually lift my arms overhead. I mean, in fact, I used to do a cheap, cheap way of standing up straight, which you call cheap way of standing up straight, which is put your arms behind your back, which I see a lot of people doing. But in my case, that was the exact opposite of what I should have been doing. I should have been detraining those muscles and and learning how to go up up here. And, And it did take months for me to be able to go without my arms on or hands on the wall, just in free space. But it makes perfect sense because if your arms are attached to your neck, you want to take the load off your neck. And that comes from underneath your shoulder blade, which, you know, those muscles, I didn't even, I couldn't even find them at first. It took me months to, to locate them, let alone strengthen them. But it's sort of like a hanger. If you pull weight on the hanger, it's going to like cause the neck to bend and it's not necessarily going to break. But to lift the weight of the arms is really important. And basically, once I could do this, I live up here. I mean, I'm on the line at the airport like this, and I'm in the grocery store line like this and at the bank. And and for the first half year or so, I had to teach like this so that my arms wouldn't be hanging off of my neck. And it makes a huge difference if you spend more of your life up here <laughs> than hanging down. In case it wasn't clear from our discussion what position exactly we were talking about, and you're curious to try this at home, you know how when you see photos of people lying down in a hammock or sitting back in a comfy chair, they'll often have their arms up and their hands behind their neck? The position is exactly like this, except with your hands on top of your head instead of clasped behind your neck. When I gave this a try, strangely enough, it felt really good to me as well. But is this something that is good for everyone to do? Or is it just unique to Pamela or folks who have experienced neck injuries? Here's what Howard had to say. It's something you need to rule out when you evaluate somebody's uh, ability to use their arms. You know, you want to know if they have symptoms from their arms being in, we call it uh, in a depressed position, the scapula or the shoulder blade, if it's too low, if it hangs too low, that is called scapula depression in, in terms of the movement system that I use. And uh, if by Taking away that depression the, when the person either is aligned or moving, if that makes them feel better, that tells us that that's contributing to their problem. So it's a something to rule out with anybody who's got a neck shoulder issues. What's the influence of their scapular position on those symptoms? And often that's not evaluated too much. But I think mus- all musicians should have the ability to lift their arms to the ceiling, to the sky pain-free without obstruction. That just makes perfect sense to me for, for a musician. Well, because it's the opposite of what we do. Like you said, holding, holding, down, holding something in front of your body. Down. Yeah. 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 But also it's not just shoulder and neck. If I could just add on to that, it's just if, I mean, I had symptoms in my hands too. I had numbness in my hands and a lot of people don't equate the hands with the neck. And so often something comes from the neck and the shoulders um, and extends to the hands. Right. If you look at a nerve as being like a piece of spaghetti <laughs> hanging down from your neck into your arms and fingers, and if you just let time go by and the arms are hanging down, that spaghetti is going to stretch, and that stretch adds tension uh, and could cause symptoms eventually. So by getting that, that nerve off that 
constant gravitational pull, it puts the nerve on slack and that makes it oftentimes feel better. So I don't think it's just for musicians also. I mean, think about all the people that sit at a desk or at a computer. I mean, it's the same, it's the same positional danger. And it's shocking to both of us, I think, how many young people cannot raise their arms. And that's just a symptom or a sign of how much of everybody's life is down here, you know, at lap level. <laughs> this made me think about my own desk setup and how I have a very shallow desk with only enough room for the computer monitor and keyboard and also a chair with no armrests. So I'm probably having to expend unnecessary energy and effort to keep my right arm elevated over the trackpad. As you can imagine, Howard had some helpful suggestions on things we can all do to improve our posture and avoid putting more stress on our bodies while on the computer. So the solution would be either to get your muscles very, very well trained, the ones that elevate the shoulder blades and the arms, so that having your arms out in space feels like nothing. But if it automatically or, or feels like a stress to have your arms floating in space when you're typing or something, then you would definitely want a chair that's got arm supports or adding on supports to your desk would be an alternative. Don't you always or often advocate for the same reasons, a separate keypad well, or yeah, an angled keypad? Or? Yeah, no, if you're using a laptop that's too low, you can get one of these uh, laptop supports that elevates the screen. And so you're not looking down and then you have your separate keyboard, a separate mouse so that you could work with that with the monitor being at a higher place. The alternative is if you don't have arm supports to get your chair to go underneath the desk, that means you need to have space underneath your desk so you could rest most of your forearm on the desk, hopefully with your head and shoulders being in a good, good place also. See, this is why this makes so, so much sense to me. This is not voodoo. This is just common sense that takes an intelligent person to know how, I mean, one of your big themes is make your environment adapt to you and not the other way around. And there's so many little things that we can adjust and modify that help our body be in a, in a safer, more neutral place that we don't even think about, like the arm supports. Could you guys actually describe some of the things that, like, for instance, specifically that you were doing that you didn't realize you were doing that were causing problems, whether it's in line the grocery store or chopping vegetables? I don't chop vegetables, but yes, um, plenty of things. I mean, certainly on the instrument, my, my left arm was pinned to my body. There was no space here. And my head was permanently turned left facing my fingers. So my head was, you know, my neck was twisted. And then my scroll was really pointing to the floor. So those three, and as a result, my head was being pushed forward, also forward and to the left, and the left arm pinned into the body. Your head was tilted left, too. Tilted left also, right. Yeah. Tilted left, turned left, and forward. Right. And could then, I, oh, sorry. Can I just describe what that did to the muscles? Sure. And your, so when her arm is pulled into her body, the rhomboids are the muscles that pull the blade towards your spine. That muscle was so overused and dominant that... When I first tested her out and said, okay, let me see you reach your arm up and forward, her shoulder blade did not move up and forward with her arm. It actually moved backwards. <laughs> so that's just a great, great example of how your body adapts to what you do with it. So she kept by doing or bringing her shoulder blades together and pulling her arm into her body when she played. 
that muscle was working overtime. She had to learn to let go of that muscle so that it could follow the arm up. And that allowed her to get some pain-free uh, arm, arm motion. Unfortunately, I don't have video of that because that would have been so great to see that scapula moving the wrong direction. But also walking. I mean, without the violin, obviously, when I was on my right leg, I would dip left. My torso would dip left, which is, of course, what I do when I play the violin. So it's replicating the same problem, the same problematic position. So I had to relearn how to walk. Actually, I had to train my glute muscles to prevent myself from dipping left on every step, which is a lot of mental work and physical work. Then sleeping. Sleeping was another thing where I used to sleep in severe fetal position, which is, of course, doing the same thing. My left arm is pinned in. My my head is forward and to the left. And so um, Howard had me find a neutral spine by putting a, a pillow under my left arm, a pillow between my legs and a body pillow in front so that the spine retained its natural curves. And that made a big difference because that's eight hours of your day. Uh, so walking, sitting, I used to sit on the front of my chair, which would arch my back and push my head forward. So I learned how to sit using feet, the back of the chair also for feedback um, with the feet planted firmly on the ground, which they had never been before either. Um, even the music stand, you know, it used to be very low music stand because I thought it promoted more communication, which is total nonsense because if you're paying attention, you're communicating. So I had to learn how to uh, play with a stand at eye level and then just communicate more with radar and not rely on seeing the people around me so much. Um, she was a- eating and drinking, even just bringing the plate to me instead of like, you know, he, he always says, if you have a sprained neck, you want to keep it stable. Right. So I used to move my head towards the plate instead of bring the plate towards your head. Same thing with a glass. And then of course, just basic talking. I mean, I'm a probably an overexpressive talker. And so I, I gesture a lot and I had to learn how to just talk with my mouth and not with my head and washing my hair. I used to wash my hair with my head instead of, and and Howard would say, well, couldn't you move your hands? Could you use your hands to wash your hair or brush your hair with your hands instead of your head? And so everything became an arm exercise actually, because I was using my head instead of my arms for a lot of activities, brushing teeth, putting on chapstick, all of it. She was a very compliant patient because I'd say, (laughs) you know, you really shouldn't be wearing such heavy jackets. You should get maybe a lighter down jacket because the weight up on your neck and shoulders. She said, oh, great. I'll go out and I'll buy six jackets. (laughs) So she comes back. I bought three different colors. And so you got to, you know, every time I asked her to get something like a pillow, she said, oh, yeah, I got this great big pillow. And she loved to shop. Well, I used it as an excuse for shopping and I used to joke that I'd send you the bill, but, right. um, but all, it's because all those things made sense to me. It's all those little things that add up in a day. So, and those really have nothing to do with playing the violin. Our conversation began with a focus on how our habitual movement patterns in our day-to-day life can contribute to various aches, pains, or injuries. But then the conversation begins to shift to a concept that coaches in sports often say, that you play like you practice. One of our themes of our talk is uh, you get what you train for. And uh, that's what I say in physical therapy. Your body adapts to what you do with it all day long. The way you use it for eating and drinking is the way you're going to use it uh, for other things. 
Pam has the same philosophy with playing. Do you want to describe? Well, I mean, I always just say the way you have practiced is the way you're going to play. And so if you've practiced safe, safely or mechanically, that's the way you're going to get on stage. I mean, you, you, you're not suddenly an artist. Artistry has to be trained. And so it's important to practice the way you want to sound all the time. And not, you know, I overhear people saying, oh, I need to practice. Today I'm going to practice for intonation. And tomorrow I'm going to practice for phrasing. And this is just ludicrous to me because great playing is playing on men, all those things at once, the simultaneity of everything. And so if you practice with commitment and a thousand percent expression, then the only difference on stage is that they're going to be people with whom to share that expression. And it's also different physiologically. If you're engaged or if you're half engaged or God forbid, if you're totally passive and watching TV or thinking about other things, my father used to say, you can actually unlearn things if you're not paying attention. So to not only pay a thousand percent attention, but to play in your practice room with full adrenaline, with full intention, with full communication, because that's also training. It's not just training your mind and your, and your soul, it's training your body so that you're not caught unawares when you get on stage, when suddenly there's nerves and an audience and adrenaline. Uh, if you haven't trained what it feels like to play with all of that, you're going to actually get nervous and that's going to cause more tension. And then it's a vicious cycle. So I advocate I advocate both things. One thing is what you mentioned, which is that what are just the mechanical problems in this passage? And to be completely objective about it and not judgmental, which is Howard's specialty, which is why I think you're a great physical therapist, is that it, it never becomes personal or emotional. It's just mechanics. And so if you can identify, like a scientist in your practice room, where is the problem? And not what is the area of the problem, but in what measure is the problem as specifically as possible? And in what beat? And then, okay, it's beat three. Now, is the problem in the right hand or in the left hand? Again, totally objective, you know? And is it an intonation problem? Well, thank God there's only 50, you have a 50-50 chance of being right. It's sharp or flat. So you can already anticipate what your problems are. Just intellectually, you can you know, like the Bible says, know thyself. You can you can guess your tendency ahead of time. And then, or is it a problem with, as you said, the you know, not getting the right angle of the stick or the bow? I mean, there there's a finite number of factors in both hands, what a problem is. So the first thing is just to identify it. And then to say, okay, well, how, how am I going to fix it? You know, rationally. And then to give yourself fewer chances in which to fix it. That is a big part of my philosophy because I believe in practicing much less. I believe in thinking more and practicing less. Thinking more means something doesn't go right. You play it once, you stop, you analyze, you say, well, what was it? And the next time you play it, it's going to be a correction. If you repeat the problem, you're just ingraining the problem. If You don't need to confirm that it was terrible. You need to already, every time you play should be an improvement of something consciously. And specifically, and then if you haven't fixed it by three chances, you're not paying attention. You're not thinking enough. That kind of practicing is much more effective. It's much less time consuming. It doesn't lead to repetitive stress injury. And, but it's much more tiring. It's much more tiring on the brain. So you have to do it for shorter amounts of time. But yes, I think a lot of it is just analyzing what a problem is. And then the flip side is then playing that same passage with a thousand percent expression to see what happens 
to your body and to your mind and to your soul. Also, the other thing that is really important is to restrict the amount of time that you have because that will force you to prioritize. If you have all day, you think everything is equally important, which we know is not the case. I always say cut your practice time in half and then cut it in half again and give yourself a very short laundry list, three things to fix. If you can really fix three things instead of semi-fix 10 things, it will be better for your playing. It'll be better for your confidence. The trick is to be honest when you practice and please do not practice what already goes well. So if the problem is in measure 39, don't even practice measure 38 or 40, even if it feels good for the ego, because the sooner you can just attack your demons, the better off you'll be. And then the the other big thing about thinking more and playing less is score study. I mean, if you can learn a piece with your eyes and make all the decisions before your hands get involved, you'll be a better player and a better musician and you'll also save your save your body so to answer your question in a very long-winded way part of it is totally objective analytical way of being way of thinking of of identifying problems in a non-judgmental way and then when you play play for real pamela alluded to the concept of non-judgment a couple times to this point not just here with regards to your own practice but a little earlier as well, noting that Howard's ability to remain non-judgmental is what makes him such an effective physical therapist. I wanted to hear more about what she meant by this, because one of my favorite studies is a 1976 study of legendary college basketball coach John Wooden's coaching style, where two psychologists observed 15 practices and tracked and categorized every single thing that he said, adding up to over 2,300 acts of teaching in total. The researchers found that surprisingly few of his acts of teaching were judgment-based, with only about 6.9% being praise and 6.6% being criticism. Almost all the rest was instruction, in other words, feedback without positive or negative judgment. I described the study to Howard and Pamela and asked if they could each say more about judgment as it relates to each of their particular areas of expertise. What I say to myself and also to my students is, If you're going to start using negative terminology on yourself for every negative, uh, negative thing you say about yourself, you also have to say one positive thing because the truth in life is gray. It's not black and white. Um, that's the first thing. The other thing is I think that general generalizing criticism is a total cop out. It's an avoidance technique. You know, when I say to a student, so what's the matter? And she says, it's out of tune. I say, well, where is it out of tune? And she points to the whole page. Well, that's not useful. It's demoralizing. And there's no way to go about that. You know, you can just throw up your hands and say, I suck. And, uh, but there's no magic pill. The, the, the trick is just to say, okay, probably not all of it is out of tune. So if you could just localize to the small, find the smallest common denominator, the smallest cell of what a problem is, then you start to realize that the other 99% of that page was actually okay. So uh, that kind of scrutiny, I think, really helps. And then really, what what are the mechanics of it? It's not you. It's not your soul. It's it's out of tune. It's sharp or flat or the, the boat, you know, the sound wasn't right. Okay. So look at what all the properties of the bow are. Is, is the, is it the flatness of the hair? Is it the location on the stick? Is it the location on the instrument? Is it the sounding point? Is it how many fingers are engaged in the right hand? I mean, 
there's a finite number of variables with the bow and the left hand. And so if you can just, just analyze, just analyze and say, oh, well, I guess maybe the problem really was only in one beat. It'll make you feel better about yourself about the, about the rest of it. Yeah. It's a great subject. You know, she's, um, you are a different sort of species. Uh, <laughs> she's unbelievably the opposite way. She's, she can turn lemons into lemonade very easily. So she's got really great skills in this department. She actually tells me to write a good journal, like in the evening, to say what was good about stuff that happened during the day. So it'd be really interesting to figure out how do we change somebody's judgment of themselves or their playing over time, and how do you, how can you figure that out if, if you're able to do that? I mean, I, I just try to give little instructions there's a psychologist named, sports psychologist named Alan Fox, who works with tennis players, who has a great uh, little article that I show you later. But embrace risk is one of the uh, fun parts of playing, and you'll be less prone to missing. And so with tennis players, it's true. Like the fun of the sport is like to let yourself go and maximize the uh, what you can get out of your body with, the, with allowing yourself to screw up and miss. So that's a huge element is allowing yourself to screw up and miss is very, very difficult for people to do. But you also say that of your own tennis playing, like you would have a problem with your oh, yeah. swing. Oh, yeah. No, I trying create, so hard. Part of my shoulder problem in my left side was because when I got nervous and I wanted to make sure the ball stayed in the court, like a musician will want to make sure the note is perfectly correct you use excess muscles and you stop letting yourself be fluid so i would stop myself from rotating on a forehand and this this is a position that can cause shoulder pain because this is not an optimal position but if i rotated this was a better shot i had much more power when i uncoiled from that backstroke and um the pain wasn't there because i wasn't in a bad position so that was a eye-opening for me to figure out that I, oh, I need to swing on my forehand. But there's a perfect correlation with playing also. I mean, it's, it's this false notion that perfection is the, is the goal, neither in sports nor in music. I would say only brain surgery should be perfect. And otherwise there are no consequences to screwing up. And the irony is that if you're trying to get through, let's say a game perfectly or a piece perfectly, that does cause tension. Right. And ironically, it will cause negative results. That, but if you allow yourself to relax and say you're going to miss a shot or miss a shift or miss something, usually the opposite happens because you're relaxed. But can I just say one thing also about what makes you a good physical therapist, which I don't tell you often enough, is that, I mean, having been to many practitioners for various things, what I appreciated and in the way you treat patients is with the same objectivity. There's never anything personal like, oh, your tissue is, what, what's one of the things that, uh, you have Two. loose connective tissue or you have a weak spine or, you know, you, the, the vertebrae are screwed up. I mean, in other words, so many terms like that get bandied about in physical therapy sessions or pra with practitioners. And it was never about that. I never felt like, oh, it's my body's fault or it's my fault that I ended up this way. It's like, here's what it is. And here's what we're going to do to mechanically improve you. And that took all the pressure off me or the onus off me to feel like I was somehow responsible for my problem. 
That's a big difference between you and a lot of practitioners. So how does one retrain themselves to change movement patterns that have become habitual over the course of many years or even decades? Sometimes it's unbelievably simple when somebody is shown, oh, this causes you pain and this movement does not cause you pain. Mm -hmm. Can you open your garage door the right way? Can you <laughs> steer your car without bringing your elbow way out to the side? And the person says, well, yeah, sure. And they, they do that and it's, and it's better. And they can do that repeatedly through their day. I trained a, a, a friend of mine to serve a tennis ball by not bringing his elbow out to the side, but dropping it and going in the other direction, and, and it helped him. So, and he was also he's an orthopedic surgeon. He's an orthopedic surgeon who was going to possibly have uh, shoulder surgery. And yeah, but um, didn't you tell him how to tie knots differently? In the OR, they can tie knots and go like that, which is causing impingement to the shoulder, or you can tie knots and go this way. So those things are very, very doable for the right person. For the wrong person. <laughs> They're going to say to me, are you kidding me? You're, <laughs> you're telling me I have to get out of a chair and not keep my knees going together? I don't want to have to think about that. i got too much in my day to think about. So for the wrong person, it doesn't make any sense to them to change their movement pattern. A really stupid example for me is last night I started to get sharp pain in my pinky from flossing because the, the, fl <laughs> the floss goes right over that joint. And it's wintertime and the skin is dry and it's just searing pain. So I have to say, okay, let's let's get the floss to go over the the next finger, the fourth finger, and that's a pain in the ass. I have to take my, I can't coordinate that, but the pain's not there. Then this will heal up, but it takes time and effort and focus, and it's a pain in the ass sometimes. Well, I found it very difficult, but I because it was not just changing habits; it was almost sort of changing my personality. But I was extremely motivated for a number of reasons. I mean, I could not do what I love to do the most, which is play. And also this just made sense to me because I was involved in the healing process. I was not a passive recipient. And I found that really empowering and very different than any other kind of therapy that I've had, because that means that you're in charge of yourself ultimately, and you're going to do yourself in, or you're going to really help yourself. And I like the feeling of being in control. And that way, like a good parent or a good teacher or a good physical therapist, you are helping your child, student, or patient become independent and not dependent on the, the practitioner, the parent, or the teacher. So I found that very inspiring uh, to continue to do. But as you said, for a long time, especially under duress in stressful situations when there were nerves involved. Those are usually the times where you go back to what you know the best because it's the safest. It's your default position. But I found that I didn't regress as much as I had feared in those situations. The first couple of times of performing, ironically, because it had been so long, it had taken so long to get to that point of the first performance. It had taken 14 months. And so with that kind of time, the body has the time to relearn something. So it's more ingrained than a quick fix. You know, it's like I always uh, equate this to the opposite of uh, cramming for a test. If you cram for a test, you take the test the next day, you've forgotten everything that, uh, that you crammed. But with real learning being so slow, I went back to my old ways far less than I had feared. And that was also very encouraging. And then I realized, oh, you can teach an old dog new tricks and I can 
I can still play the violin. And I actually think that I play better, even if it feels uncomfortable or awkward. And I also know that this is going to be my lifelong new habit. And so it's all psychological that you know you're doing the right thing for yourself. So you're going to get over the awkwardness. And if you regress a little bit, it's not like you're going to go back to square square one. You know, you go back a little bit and then next time you go back a little, le- little less and a little less. But the other thing is the flip side of all of this is that I'm permanently thinking about it. I will never become complacent and think, oh, well, I've been retrained and that's it. No, because the tendency is always to go back to what you've done for 45 years. Right. So a lot of it has to do with the person's uh, psychology. Can, can they handle the idea of retraining an automatic movement pattern? Like for some people, it's just uh, out of the question. They can't even contemplate that. You need to have kind of a strong ego also, because you have to, I mean, when I first started playing again with completely new setup and equipment and everything, it sounded awful. And I had to just tell myself, well, okay, it's okay to sound awful. And that was another example of how objective you were. He said, you know, if you're doing, if you're doing the right thing with your body, you get an A plus from me. We're not judging the playing because you have to leave your ego at the door when you learn, retrain something. It's not going to sound good or feel good, but you have to be okay with that, knowing that over time it will get better. So you have to just tell yourself the right things that this is temporary. <laughs> yeah. And I like to use the example of Pete Sampras, who as a kid, he was told you should not use a two-handed backhand. You should use a one-handed backhand. And he, he played like crap. He lost tons of matches but the goal was to develop a one-handed backhand. He allowed himself to not be so good and lose matches. That's the way you, you're going to retrain your, your body. And he now, you know, obviously he was one of the best that ever lived. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's other players. I've watched players, kids, uh, Peter Fleming, who was John McEnroe's doubles partner, who uh, he was totally wild as a kid, as a 14-year-old. And then he just kept hitting these big shots that were missing, but he kept doing it and doing it. And finally he became the number one doubles player in the world there for a while. Howard's story seemed to support Pamela's advice to practice taking risks in practice and the importance of practicing playing with 1,000% expressiveness, which she thought also had a connection to nerves and why it is that we get nervous in performance. I think the reason most people get nervous is that they haven't simulated an on-stage experience in the practice room. And the idea of saving yourself for the performance, I mean, we're not singers, we don't need to mark, you know, we don't have vocal cords that need protection. I mean, it's quite the opposite. I think that that people would enjoy practice a lot more if they practiced really going for something and playing the most X version of something, the, the most passionate or the most exciting or the most, you know, your most. If people practiced like that, they would realize that they actually would overcome the things that they're worried about sooner, like these missed things, a missed shift or a, you know, whatever, missed notes. And I think to that end, it helps to simulate performance in every possible way, like to play in as big a room as possible. And if you need to line up stuffed animals or vegetables with eyes or you know anything that has eyes that simulates a human being, you know, in the furthest corner and you make it dark and put a spotlight on. Or in my case, I never wear pantyhose. And so when I put on pantyhose, my adrenaline starts going, my heart beats really fast because I know this concert time, you know, so... Put on your pantyhose, put on your concert clothes, do whatever it takes. And then when you play, play as if it's the last time you're ever going to play this and give yourself one chance to say it all. 
not 10, because in reality you have one. And that's part of, it sounds sadistic, but I think restricting the laundry list, restricting the amount of time that you give yourself to improve is really important because in reality, you don't have that luxury. And so see what happens to you if you just go for it every time. And then you'll start to enjoy that feeling and then it won't be foreign. But what I try to do is connect the feeling of the practice room to the stage. Reminds me a little bit of like the NCAA's limits of 20 hours a week for their student athletes. What would it be like if musicians couldn't touch their instruments for more than 20 hours a week? It would be interesting to see what kinds of adaptations people make in order to make sure they can get as much time as possible. Yeah, that would be That's, a very interesting idea. Well, I mean, I we do that when we work with people together. We, we try to develop a practice program for them where it literally cuts their time in half and then in half again, and even within that time to do small bouts because the brain cannot tolerate long bouts of really concentrated practice. And what it teaches you, I mean, those boundaries teach you to be efficient to prioritize. Not everything sucks equally. It just doesn't. And then even though it's really hard on the ego, you actually improve more quickly, even though it's more difficult. And then you get more confidence. I mean, people wonder why they're not getting better and they're practicing eight hours a day. And I said, well, it has nothing to do with how many hours. It's what are you doing in those hours? And you know, when you walk out on stage, you don't wear a sign saying, really, I practice 10 hours a day. Nobody cares or knows. So, yes, to restrict the amount of time would force efficiency on people, I think. Speaking of efficiency, there's a quote often found on the Internet, sometimes attributed to Abraham Lincoln, which goes something like, if I had four hours to chop down a tree, I would spend two of those hours sharpening my axe. Putting aside the fact that Lincoln doesn't seem to have ever said anything like this, if we were to apply this to music, one could argue that it speaks to the importance of warming up properly before playing. But why is it so important to warm up anyway? All the um, tissues in your body, uh, muscles, uh, joints, connective tissue, function better when the circulation is optimal. So when you wake up in the morning, you are cold. You know the first five minutes waking up that you're not going to do something strenuous at that point because your joints, muscles don't quite feel right. So... If somebody, maybe they're up for an hour or two and they haven't touched their instrument yet, you just want to go through the the process of, of using your muscles in a very easy, light way. But prior to that, systemically throughout your body, if the circulation is improved, you're going to get warmth, blood flow to all the areas. That's the safest way to make sure that you have good circulation going through your fingers. Um, by, and, and by doing that as a whole overall body movement, such as uh, walk up down the stairs a couple times, do some jumping jacks, walk around the block a couple times, any of those things would be good to loosen up. But you definitely want to move your fingers also in a very easy way initially. It's shocking to me that students who are willing to like just go full blast right from the first note, no matter what state they're in, they don't even think about that. But that's a I think important. Well, I, I remember when I first started lifting the violin again uh, under your supervision and you said, go take a walk. I mean, taking a walk is such a basic thing. Hands free, of course, cell phone free, errand free, you know, take a simple walk and get your body moving. Um, and another occupational therapist once told me that it's much more important, to, as you just said, to get your heart rate up 
because then your extremities will be warm. It's a much safer place to start if your hands are not cold. But of course, that comes from if your heart if your heart is pumping or not. So yeah, jumping jacks, running in place, up and down the stairs, break a sweat, and you'll be in a safer place to to start. And then don't start with fast, loud, and you know finger doctors and all the rest of that. Just just get it going slowly because actually, if you spend more time at the beginning slowly in a safe way, it'll save you time. I mean, people like to cut to the chase and that ends up not, it ends up wasting time and possibly even hurting themselves. At this point, I stopped recording and began packing up. And of course, as we continued to chat, the conversation got interesting. Pamela began talking about how important it is to appreciate that all of this is not just about injury prevention or recovery. It's also about sounding better when you play this way. Howard mentioned that he'll often have clients record themselves playing, playing once like they normally do, and then again, but with as little tension as possible. And then when they listen back, invariably they choose the version with less tension. And when they do this exercise with video and watch the two versions, people tend to choose the less tense version here too. Howard also described his dream of one day making it possible for all musicians and orchestra to have a one-minute stretching break at some point during every 90 minutes of orchestra rehearsal. Not to be used to chat or to look at their phones, but to stretch, move around, and put their instrument down for a moment, so that they have an opportunity to keep the gradual accumulation of tension throughout the rehearsal from getting too high. The last thing that came up had to do with the importance of making sure to get treatment advice that is unique to you rather than relying on generic advice or one-size-fits-all approach. Just like how you want to make sure to customize your violin setup to fit you and your unique needs, instead of trying to adapt yourself or your playing style to the instrument. If you're interested in learning more about Howard and Pamela and the collaborative workshops and teaching they do, go to fitasafiddle.nyc. And for a full transcript of this episode, as well as links to random things that came up in conversation, please visit bulletproofmusician.com slash blog.